0: It's become apparent to me just a little while ago that Beck and I have been parents for two and a half years. Um, Sam has been in our life for two and a half years um, since Feb twenty twenty, and so now that we've basically in August, it's really two and a half years. And um, it's been an amazing season. Uh, Being parents is wild, it's absolutely nuts. There are some amazing highs and then there are amazing lows as well. Amazing is probably not the right word to talk about lows, but that's what we say. Um, And one of the truths of parenting for those who will become parents one day, the days are long and the years are short. (laughs) I uh, can't believe that Sam is already nearly three, and that um, we've gone through all that. And there honestly have been days that I'm like, how is this blob supposed to turn into a toddler? And uh, days now that I'm kind of like, how does this toddler turn into a full on kid? And how's that kid supposed to turn into a teenager? And how is that teenager supposed to then turn into someone who is able to live by himself, cook, for himself and possibly us as well, and um, you know, clean the house. It's crazy because the days are long, but the years are short. He picks things up. Um, you know, just the other day, we were just driving in the car, uh, the Sam and myself, um, and he was singing, Sam loves singing, and he was in the backseat and he was just kind of uh, doing his thing. And then he suddenly just says, I love you, Dad. And I'm like, out of the blue. I didn't ask, for I always ask for it. It's of those things like, if I'm going to be a dad, I'm going to milk this thing while he's still impressionable. Who do you love, Sam? Do you love dad? Can you say, I love you, dad? And, but this time around, he did it by himself, which is a sure sign that he's maturing and he's growing and he's going to be well adjusted because he can say, I love you, dad. But um, one of the things that we have also needed to be aware of And most of you know our story, Uh, but we as adoptive parents, we have to hold in mind that Sam's um, early start, uh, difficult start, is not going to just go away and disappear. Rather, there are going to be things that we're going to have to be aware of because trauma changes people, trauma affects people. And um, one of the first lessons we had in our adoption training, in fact, I think it was the very first lesson. uh, We had a seminar that gave us all the info, not all, but the info about how adoption works. Then we went for this training seminar, and I think this was the very first exercise they did. So we sat down, and they showed us a couple of videos. So I'm gonna show you the first video. This is my remake of it. Um, But turn your attention to the screen so you can play the first video. In fact, this clip is from YouTube, and people literally watch these kind of clips to relax, apparently. The whole clip is like two hours long. And people just literally will put that on and go, I just need to de-stress. Alright, and so I'm going to show you a second clip. If you can go to the second clip. Expecting Jaws to come out. <laughs> How did that one make you feel? Very good. Did you say very good? <laughs> Some people love adrenaline. <laughs> I think the general response when we um, were in this class was like, you kind of get this sense of like, what's going to come around the corner? What's about to pop up from behind the trees? Where's the shark going to come from? and. Um, the person teaching this class was saying that's what it is like for people who have suffered trauma whether it's, you know, a difficult early start to, year, uh, to their life or uh, whatever we face. In fact, um, the studies show that trauma comes in many forms, shapes and sizes. Uh, a lot of it is our interpretation of events, is how we see it, is, is what it meant to us and how we process it. And so trauma is something that we all face in our lives and what trauma can do, especially for our wonderful adoptees is that it makes a soundtrack of fear, of shark music playing in the background so that where normally it's like, oh this is a wonderful little walk in the park or hike in the middle of a jungle, it turns into something uh, that is where's the danger going to come from? And so that was something that we learned and we needed to be aware that even though Sam was adopted at a really young age and um, there was as little um, uh, changeovers of of care as possible, there is every chance that he's gonna grow up with a whole bunch of um, scenarios that bring up the shark music in his life. That is something that we as parents have got to be aware of and we have seen it at play sometimes Uh, Things trigger him and he does have the sharp music and we need to find out how to provide care for him in that uh, place. Um, But what we need to understand is that because of such difficult painful scenarios and situations in our life, we sometimes come to the conclusion that pain equals bad. We come to this place where we think that all pain should be avoided. And in our culture today, that is especially true. Our culture is extremely pain avoidant. You know, you, you get to sit on an airplane. Oh no, but is your neck could get, you know, stiff and struggling. So you better buy a neck pillow, even though you get the joys of Air travel, that you get to explore wonderful new places, but you better make sure that your neck doesn't have any pain over this two-hour flight that you're going to have. You know, we we talk about pain as though pain is the worst thing in the world. We talk about we avoid pain. We avoid difficult situations. You know what the people do before they had smartphones and they were on public transport? They sat and they looked around. Now that's painful. It's awkward, so what do we do on public transport? Mm. We are so avoidant of pain because pain has this connotation of bad. This is something I don't want to have, this is something I want to avoid. And to some extent, it's true, but when we get to a place where all pain is necessarily bad, we end up missing out on a lot of life. And um, as I was doing research into this topic, I was. Uh, listening to this author um, and researcher talk about uh, this idea of suffering and pain in the world and she was saying just think about people that are medically unable to feel pain there are people in our world that they medically do not have working pain receptors their lives are extremely extremely fraught with danger For them, they could be placing their hand on an open fire and not know. They could have sliced their arm open, their their body open, and their guts could be spilling out and they do not know that it's happening. They have to be hyper aware and build up this hyper awareness because they cannot feel pain. Feeling pain is adaptive. Feeling pain has a function in our lives. And this is what this researcher went on to say. Emotional suffering also allows us to live in community. The modern equivalent of not feeling the pain of the mind or social suffering is actually called psychopathy. The inability to feel pain. The inability to feel someone else's pain. The inability to feel pain emotionally on the inside because you have caused someone else to suffer. That lack of being able to feel pain is psychopathy. As someone who cannot feel emotional pain due to social situations. And she goes on to say that is not a good way to live. It's a really hard way to live. You end up being isolated and alone and you cannot feel. You are missing something that God has created us to be able to feel. Pain is a part of our human experience and is not a bad thing. However, pain also has a function. In particular, pain is supposed to communicate to us where there is danger or something has happened to cause us to need to respond uh, to something. And what happens in our uh, memory and in our minds is that previous pain gives us a reference point for what we should avoid. So yes, pain and avoidance do go hand in hand together, because if you have you know, put your hand on a hot uh, stove before, hopefully, that will be a reference point to help you know that is not something I should do again. So even feeling the radiant heat from the stove, you're like, okay, I need to be aware, and I need to be uh, careful to avoid touching this. That's what pain is supposed to do. However, unprocessed pain, or pain that we've not dealt with, or pain that we don't know what to do with, uh, from our experiences can also lead to uh, this constant pinging that there are threats all around us. And that is what can happen to many of us. In fact, I think that all of us have certain areas in our life where the jaw soundtrack just seems to pop up when there is no need to. For some people, myself included, some circles of people. Being in that circle of people makes me feel a little bit insecure. And that sharp music <laughs> I'm just looking around this room and you're all happy. But you're faking it. <laughs> Anyone feel like that? There are ways that the sharp music plays in our lives. And what we need to do is to understand what our response to pain yeah, should right. be and how we uh, build a life that doesn't end up with sharp music stealing our lives and stealing our uh, uh, and directing our decisions so that we are choosing something less than what god has given to us and so i want to do this uh, this morning through a story in john chapter 20 verses 19 to 29 i didn't put all of the words up on the slides i didn't put the key uh, verses that i want to look at but you can listen to this story this was after Jesus' death and his resurrection, and he was making himself known to his disciples. It says this, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, was the author, John jumped something here. There was a door locked, and Jesus came and stood among them. That is kind of freaky. It should be bring up shark music if Jesus is simply rocked up to a room anyway let's keep going and he stood among them and he said to them peace be with you when he had said them and when he had said this he showed them his hands and his side then the disciples were glad when they saw the lord and then Jesus said to them again peace be with you as the father has sent me even so i am sending you and when he had said this he breathed on them and said to them receive the holy spirit if you forgive the sins of any they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, in Promise, verse 24, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. The mark of the nails is like where the nails went. The mark of the side is where the spear pierced them to prove his death. Um, and verse 26 8 days later his disciples were inside again and Thomas whispered them although the doors were locked his disciples. Jesus came and stood among them sorry although the doors were locked again Jesus came and stood among them and said peace be with you then he said to Thomas put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side not on my side guys in my side <laughs> do not disbelieve but believe Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. That's the answer I would be giving if I could put my hand in someone's side and still be able to pull it out. Gross. My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, many of us know the story of doubting Thomas, right? And I think that doubting Thomas gets the worst reputation of any of the disciples even judas i think that many christians kind of have a place for judas judas is the guy that was the traitor he was the necessary evil in order for god to accomplish his plans make sense yeah. without judas no crucifixion no resurrection no forgiveness of sins no proving that jesus is truly the messiah so judas is a necessary evil we don't like judas But we get Judas, we get that God had some kind of purpose for him, but Thomas, we've got no time for Thomas. (laughs) Thomas is the dumb, idiotic, slow disciple that followed Jesus for three years, heard about Jesus talking about his death and resurrection, and then still doubts. He's the guy that we all go, we can't be like Thomas. In fact, some of us, we kind of go like, I'm like Judas. I have betrayed God, but I'm not like Thomas. <laughs> oh, don't make me sound like Thomas. No, that guy is, is, he's the black sheep of the 12. He's like the worst sheep. Judas is ghost sheep. He's gone. But we still count Thomas one of the apostles But here we have this passage where we talk about it and say, come on guys, you need to ensure that you don't doubt Jesus. And we make it sound like Thomas is the worst. Thomas is not the worst. Thomas has just gone through a crazy, difficult situation. Let's slow down and think about this situation And I wanted to read the first few verses, verse 19 to 23 of John 20, because what we need to realize is what Thomas versus the rest of the disciples got to see and what they all were experiencing. So we start off with this picture of the disciples in this room and they locked the doors and it says, because of the fear of the Jews, what was going on here? Now, Jesus was known as um, the potential Messiah. Right, and so everyone remember his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The whole crowds they all came and said, This is the son of David, this is the Messiah. And everyone was like, This is awesome, this is the king of the Jews, this is someone that we respect, this is someone that we're looking up to. And especially, in, uh, the, the disciples were stirring up the crowd. They would say, come on, let's sing praises to Jesus. And they were very excited because they thought this was the moment of the revolution that would prove that Jesus is the Messiah. They just didn't understand how the revolution was going to take place. And neither did anyone else understand what God's plan was in this. And so when Jesus died, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of Israel, sought out the disciples to kill them because they were heretics in their mind. Their very lives were in danger for being associated with Jesus, for stirring up the whole city, and for preaching a gospel of the Messiah when this guy named Jesus hung on a Roman cross, the worst kind of humiliation known to people in that day and age hanging on a cross, was to be cursed. And he said, this guy cannot be the Messiah because he's been humiliated and he has been cursed. And all the people that were following him clearly were rebels, insurgents, terrible people who deserve death. And so when Jesus died, the disciples went, what the heck do we do? And this is not even talking about the grief that they would have had to be processing and going through this man was a man who had been instructing and teaching them and living with them for three whole years they left their workplaces and their families thinking that this is the way the truth and the life and then that way truth and life kind (laughs) of shut down in a pretty spectacular way and so they were going like I love Jesus, but I'm also really disappointed. And in fact, I am shattered that what I devoted my life to is now nothing. And this is where they were. They were fearing for their lives. They were evaluating what had taken place over the last few months. They were were in a very difficult place. They shut and locked the doors. These men were full of fear. And that is what tends to happen in our lives when pain hits. Fear always follows. That's why we get that rewiring to play the sharp music, because pain and fear so often go together. But the good thing for those ten disciples in that room is that even though they were shut up away from everyone else, Jesus rocked up they weren't praying for Jesus necessarily I don't think so they were just in this lock room trying to work out what next and they were just like what do we do and then Jesus goes hi guys <laughs> peace be with you like, look look I am really Jesus and let me say it again peace be with you what an amazing thing can you imagine being in that room and being one of those guys that were like hang on we, we were thinking that this is it, and our lives are done. We were like, how do we work things out so that we can maybe go back to our families, apologize for leaving them, and hope that they will take us home? What are we meant to do? This Do we still even know how to fish? Anyone still remember how to fish? They were trying to work this out, and Jesus came back, and they're like, hang on, hang on, hang on. What does this mean? And then Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit on them. He says, like, Holy Spirit, come on you. And you guys basically are going to lead the church. This is what I've been setting you up for. They were given direction. They were given instruction. They were given encouragement. And in that moment, they were like, yes! But Thomas wasn't there. Got old Tommy. I don't know why Tommy wasn't there. It doesn't say. He just wasn't there. And so the disciples seem to have tried to go find him at least. Or maybe he joined them a little bit later. Maybe he was in a toilet that was in the outside of the locked room. Maybe he just missed it. Jesus is there. And then he was like, all right, I'll catch you guys later. He goes and Thomas comes back. What did I miss? Jesus was here. And he was like, what? No. No, guys. I will not believe Unless I place my hands in his scars and in his side, I will not believe. How many of those disciples had the very same reaction before they had that experience with Jesus? All of them. It's not doubting Thomas, it's doubting John, doubting Peter, doubting James, doubting Andrew, doubting Bartholomew. Yep. They were all doubting. But Jesus met them. But Jesus hadn't met with Thomas. He didn't get the Holy Spirit breath moment. He didn't have the commissioning moment. He didn't have the encouraging moment. They didn't have all of that. And he was like, guys, I know what you're saying. He wasn't even telling them, you shouldn't believe. He said, I'm not going to believe. Isn't that what it's like to be in church sometimes? You're like, man, I'm working through all my crap, and you're over there, he's going to do it again. He's like, I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to believe unless I see Christ in front of me, and I touch him, and I see the evidence of his life in front of me. Don't you come and do it again in front of me. Stupid Pentecostals. What was Thomas doing? He was doing what normal people do. You see, what our normal is, is to evaluate our present based on our past. That's what we do. We base our decision-making on what we know and what we've experienced. And whenever there is pain in our past, it informs our present. Our pain has a way of, of visiting our present. Sometimes it's just in terms of that shark music. It visits this present moment. Why is the shark music playing? It's because I've experienced pain. And my normal, the usual wiring is to go, this could happen again. So Thomas, in this moment, he was evaluating what the disciples were telling him. They were telling him to hope. They were telling him to press on. They were telling him to continue to have faith in Christ. And he was saying, I was let down and I don't want to be let down again. He was saying, I trusted and I've been left in the dirt. He was saying, I had faith and I've been left alone. He was saying, I loved and then I was abandoned. He was saying all of these things. He was evaluating his present based on his past. That is the normal response. And that is a response that we must, we must We must understand, respect, but also confront. Because the Christian response is that in Christ, we evaluate our present based on our future. My present is dictated to by my hope in God. My present is dictated to based on what God is saying. My present is dictated to by the picture, by the vision, by the revelation that I see in the Word of God about what my life is meant to be like. It is not saying that the past doesn't exist, but it's saying despite the pain, despite the fear... My hope is still in God. When we sing songs like walking around these walls, believing that by now they're supposed to fall, I can totally base it on my experience of it never will fall. It hasn't fallen and it won't fall. It makes sense. It's logical. You are allowed that viewpoint. But that viewpoint will mean that you look at that wall and you will walk away from what is behind it. But if I know that God is saying, this wall, whatever that wall is meant to be, does not stop you because I am with you, then you're going to have to deal with that shark music. You're going to have to come to that wall and you're going to have to evaluate. I feel fear. I don't know how. This is most important about your relationship with God. This story is so powerful because it's, Yes, that's the future of what Thomas is going to be pulled into, called into. But right now, the most important thing is that he did not want a relationship with Jesus as it stood. There are many of us that because of the pain and the suffering and the experiences we felt, we do not want the relationship that God has offered us in its current form. We're saying, I will only trust in God if... I will trust in God when, I will trust in God only, and then we place conditions on this relationship. Who are we to think that we can place conditions on our relationship with God? But the beauty of this story is that Jesus answers it. And when you read this, I think you are meant to get this sense of deja vu, because those guys were in the lock room again, so even though God had said all, Jesus said all this stuff, receive the Holy Spirit, you're going to be leading the church, all that kind of stuff, they still went back to that lock room. They didn't really know what to do next. So they went to the lock room, except this time Thomas was with them. Thomas made sure he did his toilet run and so he could join them before they locked the doors. And he was there. And it says exactly the same way. The door was locked and Jesus turns up and Jesus says, peace be with you. And then what does Jesus do? He then turns specifically to Thomas and he speaks to him. See, that's the kind of God that we have. That he wants to meet you even though you're placing conditions on his relationship with you. That's the kind of God we have. He, he rocks up to that locked room, and even though he's already turned up to the rest of those guys, he turns up for the guy who wasn't there. And he meets with him, and he gives him exactly what he's asking for. He says, touch, touch, touch. Do you get how our God operates? It's, it's weird. But I want to point something else out to you. See, when Jesus had done this, he then turns. He 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 then says to Thomas as he tells him to touch all the scars. Sorry, my nose is a bit leaky. Is that annoying everyone else besides my wife? My wife hates this. Sorry, people. I'm not sick. It is hay fever. Beck will sneakily pass me tissues just because she's annoyed me. I'm like, I'm not even annoyed by this. It's my body, my choice. <laughs> All right, back to it. So Jesus turns up. He rocks up. He shows Thomas, place your hand, place your hand. And then he says this, do not disbelieve, but believe. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, some translations puts it as do not doubt, but believe. The word in the Greek for disbelief is is much better to be understood as disbelief, not doubt. You see, the word doubt in the uh, in the Greek does appear in many other uh, uh, passages. But that word that is normally translated doubt is not the word that is used in this phrase. You see, in Mark 11 verse 23, Jesus speaking to his disciples, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart. That word is a different word. Does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass will be done for him. See, the word doubt uh, connotates this wavering of belief there are different beliefs that i am wrestling with there's option a and there's option b that's what is happening in this passage jesus is saying when you are uh, uh, praying to him when you are uh, 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 stepping out in this faith is is choosing to hold on to the one belief that god is going to come through that is that's what doubt in the situation is is not true believes however in this passage in John 20 that we've been reading and Jesus says do not disbelieve but believe the word is disbelief the word is the absence of believe a believe a non believe or unbelief do not un unbelieve that's what the word is here and why this is important is because what we need to understand about what pain does to us is that quite often what we think that pain does is that it shows us different options. Yeah, you've got two options in front of you. you um, when the shark music plays, we feel like we are wanting to take a different option. All right, And that's the picture that we sometimes get. We are trying to make a choice but what pain actually does in our lives is not give us new options but it simply tears the old option disbelief so jesus comes to thomas and says, i see your pain i see what you've been through and i see how your belief is being ripped apart. That it has become hard for you to trust me. It's become hard for you to come to me. See, the problem with this kind of a life, the problem with this kind of process of pain, <laughs> is that this is what we're left with. We're not left with another option. We're left with the rubble. Pain causes our beliefs to be questioned, torn apart, and eroded. What we need to realize is that quite often we are living in non belief of something rather than believe in something else notice that when someone says that they're an atheist they're not saying that they believe what they believe in they're saying what they don't believe in i'm atheist a non-theist and many of us with pain that we haven't processed are not living with a belief but we're living with non-beliefs you're not living in a sense That you know how to deal with your situation, you just know how not to deal with your situation. You're not saying I know how to find peace. You're saying I know how not to find peace. You're not saying I know how to find joy. You're saying I don't, I know where not to find joy. You're not saying that I know how to find wholeness and healing. You're saying I know where wholeness and healing isn't, because I've experienced that. I've come to Jesus, and I'm still left with all these pain, and I'm still left with all these situations. I trusted Him, and this happened, and it keeps ripping, and it keeps ripping, and we're left with this, and we're wondering, why is anyone asking me to trust in God? Because the answer is, what else are you left with? See, Miroslav Volf In talking about the the issue of pain is that there is one thing to try to understand why God has led me down this path. But the other side of the issue of pain that most people do not deal with and maybe don't even think about but is far more important is how do we overcome this pain and this evil? We might have had a, a broken belief because of the situation, but what next? What are you going to go for? What are you left with? See, the problem of pain and evil and the problem of suffering in our world is that it makes us question, is God good and is God present? Is God able to do what this uh, situation calls for? And some of us are, 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 are dripping these beliefs because of what we have seen. And then what? How do you solve this problem that you still have? Are you going to go for yoga? Is yoga going to solve those problems? Or is yoga just going to distract you or uh, 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 help you feel a little bit better for a while? See, the problem of pain and evil is that, yes, it feels sucky when you face it. And we question whether God is there or not. But what other hope do we have? We must confront this question of, and then what? What I've noticed a lot of people doing is that they sit in their non-believe and they start to go, this is what God did to me, and this is what God did to me, and this is what God did to me, and this is what God did to me and I will never be able to heal, I will never be whole, I will never trust again, I will never, because of this pain in my life, and you're sitting in your non-belief, sitting in here. See, God doesn't struggle with our evaluation of our beliefs. God doesn't struggle with those doubts that we have. God doesn't struggle with that. But what he asks, I think the same question that he said to Thomas, he says to us, do not unbelieve, but believe. We have to learn how to pick up the pieces with God And go no no no. this is what I can believe and this is what I will believe see our response to pain determines whether we actually have something to hold on to or we're left in the rubble those are the options that we have that process isn't easy that process isn't straightforward And I think what Jesus says to Thomas at the end, after he has acknowledged my Lord and my God, what does Jesus say? He said, have you believed because you have seen? And I think that Jesus is almost speaking to us in this next sentence. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I think God knows how hard it is to have this. I think God knows how easy it is to end up there. And that's why the Bible is full of references to finding joy in trials, to persevering through pain. Because only when tested can we really trust this. Yes, I faced that, absolutely, that sucked. But what does that actually mean about God? What does that actually mean about His Word? Because we can't, we can't have wishy-washy beliefs, half-hearted beliefs, and be able to relate to God. Either God is good or He's not. Either God is faithful or He's not. Either God is sovereign or he is not. Either God is present or he is not. Either God is almighty or he is not. We don't get it. he's almighty in these situations but he's not mighty in this. He's sovereign in these situations but he's not sovereign in these. He's good in these situations but he's not good in these. We have to go no 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 what do i believe and if god if you end up with the belief that god isn't good god isn't sovereign god isn't here god isn't caring god isn't faithful okay then how are you going to face life how do you find wholeness and peace and joy and life and life abundantly i say this with great care i say this with great love I don't say this because it's a nice illustration. I say this because this is how we grow. We have unexamined non beliefs that we are living by and is causing us to be cautious, walled up, unresponsive, and unfaithful. But maybe just like Thomas... You just missed the revelation by five minutes. And you rocked up to the room again. Well done. Maybe you're going, I'm still trying to work this out, but I'm going to keep rocking up, even though I don't know whether this makes sense. Well done. But at some point, at some point, I repeat the words of Jesus, do not unbelieve. I believe. In his hands is life. In his hands is healing, and in his hands are wholeness. Can I get the band back up, please? We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church, or on Facebook at Lift Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.